Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole. Welcome to the security podcast. And uh, this is Raf. You are down the security rabbit hole. And I've got a great guest for you today. Um, after much technical difficulty, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's uh, we record these and, and we use some interesting tech uh, to, to do it. And uh, I'm playing with this uh, new platform uh, a friend of mine uh, developed and, and uh, it's called Boomcaster. If you guys are into it, uh, into podcasting and video it's a, it's a great platform to go check out but um it's still beta but it, it, we find out <laughs> every once in a while that it's all of our security tech that hinders our communication <laughs> so without much more further ado uh yuri bobert welcome man welcome to the thank show thank you raf thank you We're nice to uh, be on your show big fan of already for a long so time com- so uh <laughs> Well, they say, you know, uh, a long-time listener, first-time caller, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, you are coming to us all the way from... The Netherlands. And so, uh, yeah. Oh. And I talked to a lot of colleagues and a lot of peers of mine that I also asked, uh, do you listen to this Down Security Rabbit Hole podcast? And the majority doesn't know it. So I'm, I think I'll also be uh, one of the, the, the... Not the only listener in Europe, but definitely perhaps somebody that's uh, joining your show and... Uh, evangelize a little bit yeah. the, uh, the topics that you address in, uh, in the in the podcast towards my peers here in Europe. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I, I just had a uh, I just had a, a guest on from uh, Amsterdam recently. So, uh, you know, I, I guess Holland is becoming a hotbed for security, which is kind of awesome. Been there a couple of times. Love it up there. How are you guys uh, dealing with winter? Very good. We have a lot of snow here. Eh? Yeah. 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 A lot of snow. I think we had uh, half a meter of snow over the last couple of weeks. And during the lockdown, uh, wow. the majority of the people here mentioned, uh, well, it looks like a, a winter skiing holiday because uh, we are not allowed to go skiing <laughs> to Austria or Swiss. So a lot of Dutch people that are used to go skiing are now using uh, the time in the Netherlands to spend the time in the snow with the kids and uh, skiing and uh, lang laufing as we know it. Eh? Yeah, yeah, okay. That sounds all, that sounds like a... Like a reasonable way to spend winter. I uh, here in the U.S. we've had some uh, some crazy cold. I'm sure you've seen on the news. Uh, I saw it. You know, uh, one of our warmest states, Texas, has been buried under ice <laughs> and snow, and that's uh, I guess that's just the effect of the, the global shifting, slightly some some of that beautiful climate change we've been we've been uh, educated about. Um, all right, on to the topics. Uh, all right, so I, I like to uh, the audience to always get to know the person that we're talking to in case they don't know who you are. Um, give us a little background on you. How did you get here? What have you done previously? And because uh, you've got a pretty interesting background. Yeah, so um, I am uh, the chief security officer of Ontuit. So that's a uh, global managed security service provider, uh, also located in the US in Plano, Texas. Um, and we are approximately now for 15 years running uh, a managed security service 
provide a platform where we are fo heavily focusing on zero trust. So we already practiced zero trust over the last 10 years and implemented hundreds of zero trust implementations over the years. And I was triggered by uh, the two founders of the company uh, two years ago, already knew them for a long time, but I was triggered because I was serving as a CISO for a large financial institute, a global financial institute, and I was a group CISO there with the agility of every CISO is the operation. Eh? That Many CISO won't uh, tell you that, but uh, all the CISO peers that I talk to for, from large enterprises suffer from uh, yeah, a, 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 let's say, a, a failing operation because it's large, it's complex, multiple tools there. Uh, and I was triggered by uh, uh, onto it because they've lifted security operations really to an art. So I was appealed by the fact that they uh, asked me for uh, for them to become their CISO and also do some uh, evangelization of zero trust for uh, uh, the, the platform and what we do with zero trust. So I decided to make the step from corporate life towards uh, onto it. And um, besides that, I also work as a academic director for the University of uh, Antwerp, where we basically do research in uh, uh, security well, basically platform security, risk assurance, uh, compliance, audit, everything uh, based upon that. So I'm a professor there and we uh, have uh, approximately 40 to 50 researchers every year doing research in that domain. So I also guide a lot of students there, master's students uh, over, um, I think already done, been there for the last five years now. I actually did my PhD there as well. So I did my, uh, my PhD in uh, information security as a management practice, but also building the technology uh, to measure and monitor that. And that's basically what we do with and onto it. So we measure and monitor the security operations. So I could combine my academic career with my, uh, with my CISO career. And uh, so basically that brought me within onto it. And uh, we are conquering the world with our platform. That's the idea. Well, I know I know about some of that firsthand, but uh, you brought up a couple of things I want to I want to dive into. The first one is you mentioned that some of the most difficult part of being a CISO is is that operations nightmare that comes with just you know eyes on a eyes on a screen, looking and trying to find the badness in in the uh, in on the wires uh, and in the air and on the systems. And you know, probably twenty years ago, that problem was a lot less difficult not to not to say it was easy but it was a lot less difficult because the scale was so much smaller right we had computers that didn't move around a lot we had systems that were fairly non-complex considering what we have today we had you know a t1 or a fractional t1 or a frame relay circuit right in and out of the company today data lives everywhere systems are ev ephemeral they're 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 basically you know, they're, they're here, they're there. It's a laptop, it's a phone, uh, it's a it's a desktop. Some of those people that have still desktops, it's a virtual system. You know, it's, it's a, a million different things and they connect in a million different ways. And some of them are working from home now and some of them were working from their, you know, from their boat or from, you know, from a ch Swiss chalet somewhere, which <laughs> I wish I was at the moment. Um, but, you know, various different places. And, and that whole idea of the corporate enclave is completely gone. Right. It's almost almost completely gone. And th the operations part of it 
where you have tools that monitor the traffic in and out. You have mo tools that monitor the systems for signs of badness. Uh, even 20 years ago, I think it was difficult to say, okay, that's what bad looks like. Today, it's I, I would say it's impossible to, to ac accurately identify all the ways that badness looks. And you have to sort of do the opposite, right? The exclusionary. Like, okay, this is what good looks like. Everything else, probably suspect. So I, I wanted to touch on that and I'll let you talk about it a little bit. Like the, that, that massive change uh, from the much more simple world to where we are today and the, the change in how many tools we have, the log volume, the, the complexity of attack, for example, right? All that seems to have just hockey stick up and, uh, and it's hard. I, I keep hearing the same things as you do. So tell, give me a little bit of your perspective on, on, on operations. Yeah, so I think we have a couple of, it's, it's, it is, we have a couple of very interesting uh, things happening in our environment. So we have uh, CIOs building massive IT operations, all want to do sexy things, go to the cloud and build stuff, connect all these devices to each other, do more with data. So we have a huge amount of uh, systems and data floating all over the place. And we have very old school, traditional ways of monitoring uh, those systems and see if you can do some interpretation of events that are most likely to impact those assets. But most of the time it's either manual or it's ad hoc looking backwards. And so, and that's basically what, to my opinion, an author also does uh, look most of the time backwards with a very small lens where you ideally want to focus forward um, with a more broader perspective and you want to focus on what's good and not everything that's bad. Eh? So that's what we also teach at the university that you cannot secure cyber because that's that's such what we call a wicked problem. And eh? there's a nice theory about it from Horst Rittel. There is a wicked problem. You cannot protect it because it's too big. It's too huge. So you want to make it smaller. You want to focus on what's relevant for you. And I think that's where we came up with the terminology yeah, that we are also we are all we're all used to the terminology the indicator of compromises so we're trying to search yeah. for the needle in the haystack and try to do and see if it's relevant for our environment a lot of manual work costs you a lot of money we have a lot of tools very very cost inefficient so we came up with the terminology called the indicator of good where we basically do a huge massive amount of log interpretation we interpreted the log based upon a couple of contextual uh, what we call metadata so we look at the event and the metadata giving context to that event for example where does it happen how often does it happen um, what is the the, the, uh, the origin of the event that's likely to impact the environment and then we determine is this an indicator of good or is it an indicator of bad? Well, by focusing on the indicator of good, it's far more easier to take action on it. Eh? So we get rid of all the noise in all the events and focus on the indicator of good. And therefore we define the action that either a customer or ourselves need to take action on. And so that's reasoning the other way around. You're not going to chase all the events that you potentially see and that could potentially harm your environment. We switch it around and we're only focusing on the indicator of good. And we automate every uh, uh, not relevant event out of the equation. That's the idea. Okay. So that that makes sense. Um... And give me to add, sorry to interrupt you, Raf. 
I think yep, there's yep. another perspective that's also relevant, and that's the auditor. Eh? So we're not here to please the auditor. We're here to protect the company. But what you also see is that yeah. when I was in NN Group, eh, the large financial institute, we did a massive uh, acquisition of Deltaloid Group, which was basically almost the same size. So we integrated 5,000 additional applications, and we wanted to get uh, that merged into our own environment. And of course, at the end of the year, we want to have official sign-off uh, by the, the, the authority that we can continue the integration and the acquisition. And then we really need to did a, need to do a very quick analysis and a quick uh, diagnose. Is this environment uh, subject to a sort of a reasonable assurance? And that's quite hard if you're there and you're equipped with uh, and you're equipped for your own environment with a certain amount of tools, people, etc. And you get a, a large portion uh, of another company added to it and then you really need to dive into all the logs and all the events and all the incidents and all the control testing so all the operational stuff that you need to, to get, uh, get that's a lot that's a lot, that's of, a data. lot of data and it's a lot of manual interpretation and i think that is that is uh, that that way of working is definitely obsolete because you see companies doing mergers and acquisitions all the time it's a dynamic landscape so you need to automate more and more yeah. Well, and that, that becomes the challenge, right? Because we in the early late 90s, early 2000s, we tried to do, uh, we, we, you know, we there were several companies out there. I remember there's a, there's a company called Okina. Do you remember those yeah. guys? They got acquired by Cisco and became the C, Cisco security agent or whatever, right? They were trying to essentially look at what's legitimate, what is a system supposed to be doing and everything else block. And that sounded like a really good idea and, and, and the tech seemed good. It's just at the time, it was really difficult to pattern what a valid system operation was going to be. Right. And but I, I, I think the pattern has exploded to sort of the, the illogical next. And that is there's there's a, a, so many different th things and functions that uh, systems, physical and virtual, can perform. The counter, I guess, the counter argument to the you know, indicator of good is: how in the world can you figure out all the things that it's that a particular system is supposed to do in a highly dynamic environment when you know some of the admins don't even quite know? That's a it's a very good question. And so I think you can make use uh, or, or leverage on the basic uh, or the huge amount of threat intelligence is out there provided by vendors uh, that's being pushed to the organization, which you can basically use in terms of uh, you don't reinvent the wheel for threat intelligence yourself. Uh, you basically want to uh, uh, leverage on existing threat intelligence technology. And um, that helps you uh, by forming uh, your opinion. So get an answer to you uh, to know what's relevant for you. So you use the existing threat intel data that we, for example, Palo Alto Networks or other service providers or uh, vendors uh, delivers you. And you make it relevant for your environment because you, and that's what we mean with uh, adding context to the log, but also context to the segment. Uh, we, we work with zero trust segments. So we add certain uh, metadata to the segment where you know that this is 
a very confidential uh, segment where we want to monitor additionally, or for example, on privileged accounts or on uh, 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 certain users. And uh, you do then the interpretation, hey, this user is making use of this uh, uh, admin or this, uh, this system, but it is vulnerable to certain, uh, uh, certain threat. So then you do that automatically, the correlation in that platform, and that basically gives you the insight. But it is highly, hey, you, this, this is not, you cannot do this manually anymore. No, no, yeah, you're right. Well, what's interesting is th this is something that I think <clears throat> way back when ISS first started talking about managed security service providers, right? And, there, and the idea that even at the IDS, IPS, at the, at the network uh, perimeters, that if if a provider, the, the strength in numbers was a big deal because they could see a threat happening over here and they could identify it, stop it, and inoculate everybody that they were monitoring, that that, that managed provider was monitoring against that threat. Now, the problem is, is that that was a lot hard, a lot easier said than done, right? That that was that was that was the downfall of this, and technology quite wasn't there. What I see today is that there is this incredible diversity of. Um, I mean, you take a look at the way a web browser behaves. A web browser is supposed to do what? Browse the web, and yet you and I are recording uh, an audio video session on it, right? While you know, it's I'm checking while you know you can check email and play a game and run a thousand different corporate applications on it and, 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 and so the web browser is no longer a single purpose tool and it's not alone, right? Your, your PDF reader makes HTTP calls. Um, your, uh, you know, your word document runs JavaScript and macros, like all these different things that do other things. It's these, the, the complexity between these systems makes it impossible to do by hand. But you mentioned something, that was interesting to me. The idea that a system or an application is vulnerable that a person is using, uh, and if, if you can kind of couple the, the user and, the, and their behavior with the system and the things we know about it, we know better how to protect them. Now, theoretically, that's easy to say because you can, okay, put some bubbles together on a piece of paper and draw it together and it looks good. How do you actually do that in real life? Because that seems like just a massive amount of data orchestration with data that is completely disparate. In other words, it, it's not meant natively to match up together, right? How do you do that at, at any reasonable scale and make it work? Because if you are, that's that's something tremendously valuable for an industry that hasn't figured that out really well. Uh, perhaps a very simple example is uh, what we most of the time use is that if you have an event, for example, I have a brute force attack on my external website, uh, that's most of the time common behavior eh? because I see that all the time happening on my external websites. But if the boot, eh? so that generates an event uh, and the event is being most of the time by a scene eh? because ma the majority of companies still use scene, it's being logged as an event, standardized event. If I have the same event happening, for example, in my internal environment where my active directory is doing brute force towards my mail server that's also an event same event in the base it's the same event but it has a completely other implication and 
for the last one, I definitely want to see it as a CISO because I want to know if somebody or some actor is performing those issues. And you, you want to know, so the event on itself doesn't say anything. You need to add context to that event. So you need to know, right. hey, is it, my, uh, is it my Active Directory doing this? What type of user is it? Is it indeed a user? Um, <clears throat> in which segment is it? Hey, it's internal. And in the internal segment is classified with a higher uh, certification class for, uh, the, when you compare it to the website, for example. So I need to give it context, the event, before I can act on it. And this is, this is data that you can extract from uh, multiple other sources, what we call in Zero Trust, eh? if you put a segmentation gateway, the segmentation gateway also pulls additional information about uh, uh, the internal network, behavior of certain users, and, and that contextualization of events gives you the possibility to write automated response scenarios, what we call sometimes a security orchestration automation response platform. Uh, but you need data for that, so you, and you need a lot of data for that. Um, and what we see in traditional environments where, where there's no segmentation and it's just a flat network is that you have a huge amount of data, but you cannot enrich it because you have, it's one pile of big chunk of data and you cannot make sense out of it. And the sense comes when you have segments where you enrich that with metadata, like uh, the owner of the segment, uh, the source, uh, the, the, the owner of the segment and the requirements of the segment. So is there PIA data in that segment? Uh, the amount of applications that you have in that segment. So you enrich the segment and therefore also the logging. And that gives you more information to respond to it. Does it make sense? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, before we before we uh, get close to our, 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 I don't want to run out of time before we talk about it because this is super important, zero trust, right? Zero trust, I've had a couple of episodes on this now. There's a lot of lot of discussion about zero trust now with the last several breaches. But zero trust in concept sounds really easy. All you have to do is assume that, you know, every communication has to be allowed first, disallowed by default. You don't trust anything to talk to anything. Um, but when you start to look at this, and, and I know you guys do this, we, we do it with you, um, at scale, the, 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 the pushback I get is, well, I've got 30,000 nodes on my network, or I've got 500,000 nodes on my network. I don't necessarily know what all of them do or how they interact or what they, where they go to. So this speaks to a much more fundamental IT problem that security has been dragging along as sort of the proverbial, uh, you know, ball and chain for 20 plus years. And that is, we don't have a good handle on function and, uh, and, and, and purpose and behavior and ultimately data. We don't know where the important stuff is, what it's supposed to be doing and who's supposed to be doing what with it. And therefore, we fell back to the security peanut butter model, which is protect everything pretty much the same and hope that the, you know, like the little mouse traps we set out throughout our house, that the rat, you know, trips and, and falls over on it and catches himself because otherwise there's no prayer. Um, how does, how, how do you get zero trust implementation 
in real life in, at very large scale with companies and, and overcome that mindset of, well, I, there's too much, I don't know. I think that zero trust is definitely not the solution for uh, a, a bit, far more bigger issue. And it has to do with uh, how our profession is being perceived. So what we most of the time see with organizations that is still a security silo party where the security architect comes up with, I want to do zero trust, but uh, because I've heard of it and I want to do something with security, where I think this is a much more bigger problem when it comes to the mindset with uh, people in our board or, and I've experienced also from firsthand that it, um, if you really want to uh, protect the environment from an intrinsic motivation, then people really need to understand that this is a profession, eh? similar like we secure our airplanes in aviation industry, or automotive industry, do it by design. It's not something that you plaster afterwards, so you need to do it by design. And it also needs to have some form of commitment from them. And it sounds like an open door, yeah. but I think it's very easy. And I always compare it in my uh, talks to, when I talk, for example, to a CFO, I always compare it, well, you don't do your uh, your financial administration on a uh, on a napkin, eh? because we are this 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 uh, finance industry is already uh, for a hundred years old, but that also evolved over time. Where I think our profession, <clears throat> this uh, this information profession, can also learn from the fact that we need a sort of a security ERP, eh? because you really want to have your administration up to par. Similar like the CFO, eh? regardless if it's a treasury department or credit administration, debit administration, he automatically wants to extract the data and have visibility on it. Similar goes for zero trust. Zero trust is just compartmentalization of your environment. This is my treasury. This is my debit administration, my credit administration. But for some reason, CISOs are apparently not capable of doing that. And they still maintain in the old fashioned way, the traditional applying a framework apply all eh, the controls over the environment. Oh yeah, and, and then I need to segment. Yeah, that's the other way around. And so start first, that's our, uh, most of the time, what we, most, uh, what we uh, try to, uh, to tell is that start very, very small and start utilizing the technology that you already have. Eh? So, so also you have more value for your money that you already spent start utilizing it first. But yeah. you know that 50% of the maintenance that uh, or the, the equipment that we find in the environments is still uh, configured with default settings, 50%, uh, five, zero percent. So half of it. You know, I, I wish that surprised me, it <laughs> no. doesn't. It really doesn't. And I think it's comparable when I leave my, I buy a new door, but I leave the key in. 50% of the companies is doing that. So no wonder that uh, all our intelligence agencies are warning us for, uh, a corporate espionage because it's, it's, yeah. it's it is out there and i think that's uh, that's a lot about the mindset of the board but it is definitely also something for the CISO that uh, the, we are here also to explain in more uh plain english without any jargon or abbreviations uh, why they should invest or should take another course of action when it comes to uh, securing their digitized businesses and uh yeah yeah I, look I, the mentality has to change because 
for you know, I look back at some of the you know, before, slightly before my time, but the early mainframe days, where we knew what the process did, who logged into it, what the data was. It was segmented by domains and very tightly controlled by the user who logged in, right? Um, and then and somewhere along the line, in the name of usability, because we thought we could do more, faster, higher scale, we just sort of said, nah, let's do away with that. Let's, let's make it, let's put data everywhere. Let's make it easy to use by anybody to do anything. And while that has dramatically exploded the amount of productivity uh, and innovation, uh, I won't disagree on that. What it has also done is absolutely cratered the ability to protect any of that. Because we talked about segmentation on the network that I built in 1999, okay? We talked about it then. It was really hard with the 65 laptops uh, and then like the four, 30 or 40 servers I had because we tried to create, you know, remember DMZ, web server, application server, database server, backend users, power users. We tried to segment that on the network and people were like, this is too hard. I, what if a user goes from this group to this group? I need to have it like right now. And I'm going, okay, I don't have the tools to do it instantly. And it takes me a minute to do it, put a help desk ticket in, have them do it manually. And so we, that, that was, that never fully got implemented. And I think, I don't know if I want to call it, I mean, take ownership for it, but like that, the failures of us to st- stand against that and say, that's not the right way to do it. There's a better way. Let's, let's stick with this segmented model because, and I think it ultimately came down to, we couldn't really explain why, right? It was just because security and bad guys. And they were like, yeah, no, get, get rid of it. And suddenly we find ourselves in, a, in an environment where we're going, oh man, I wish we would have done this 21, 22 years ago. And it's been just sort of like a snowball that gets bigger every every quarter, every year, every decade. And, and I don't even know how to unwind it right now because you've got all these networks that exist out there that have 100, 1,000, 10,000 nodes. The way to, the way to you know, fix some of them is to completely throw everything out and put a new one in. Uh, I mean, I, I know that it's, you know, your approach is, is works. I, I've done it. Like we've done it on paper and we've done it in reality, right? That start small, like create a couple of segments. And then within those segments, further segment and further segment and further segment until you get to the most usable but s- smallest atomic unit you can. But that takes a lot of work. And there's just, the appetite for that work just doesn't exist largely in 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 IT in, in enterprise, and I don't understand. Yeah, why. but I think it's also because it's being practiced by IT, yeah? so it should not be practiced by IT. It should be practiced from an intrinsic motivation to secure. And I think as a CISO, you can uh, you can do a couple of parallel routes. Yeah? So zero trust is one, but I also uh, would encourage any CISO to take the route of challenging your CIO in decommissioning unused applications because we see a lot of uh, large enterprises still use uh, applications with a very small amount of users where you can simply buy now commercial off-the-shelf products but they want to maintain it because yeah, it's so important for the organization well if you if you take the route of decommissioning and i've experienced myself with the uh, with the large acquisition eh, that you you inherit a lot of applications where you where this all forms an entry point 
for a hacker. So lower the digital risk footprint by just starting decommissioning. Uh, but it's, this is simply for a CISO a very good route to take. But for a CIO, specifically if the CISO falls on the CIO, you need to challenge your CIO. Hey, we are going to make a success out of decommissioning. Well, I've never experienced a CIO that makes that because it's not sexy. Hey, he wants to do sexy stuff. But for a CISO, yeah. it's actually a sexy thing because you want to get rid of uh, those entry points. So that's one. But it's a different route than zero trust. Eh? So that's lowering your digital footprint. If you do parallel to that zero trust, where you really want to uh, take the route, hey, we want to protect our data, and you can do, take the route of confidential computing when it comes to uh, uh, high securing data in clouds. And you can combine that still with zero trust because zero trust also is about protecting processes and traffic and it goes beyond crypto it's much more than that uh, but it, it, there are to my opinion a couple of routes i also had another route which i think we we don't address uh previously in our conversation rep and it's about uh working in distributed teams in multiple or in multinationals, eh? we have a lot of distributed teams working in India and China and Japan, working on the same product. There's another risk arising there, and that's you want to have autonomy in the team lower in the organization. But they are distributed, so there are cultural differences, interpretation differences, framework differences. So there are a couple of risks arising in those DevOps teams dispersed over the environment or dispersed over continents. Eh? that creates an additional risk because they are allowed to make decisions when it comes to risk and security. So how do you maintain visibility as a CISO over distributed risk management? Well, we've done a large examination in, uh, in uh, the University of Antwerp and we, where we examined companies suffering from cultural differences. Eh? Uh, and we've, we've came up with a very clear way of addressing those risks but also making it op, uh, uh, operationalize uh, those risks. Yeah? So uh, we developed a technology for it called the lock chain, where you actually lock the chain over multiple environments. There's also, you can find it on the website, thelockchain.eu. It's a project. We lock the chain in DevOps teams, regardless if they reside in China or Japan or in, in, in the US but you lock the chain of the team for security, risk, and compliance. It's a very small, uh, but, but it, it's, that's, uh, it's a small explanation about the project that's also a risk for a CISO. And a CISO also should take yeah. into account there as well. Eh? well nowadays, the CISO has some multiple uh, hats and roles. Therefore, I also refer to uh, the security orchestrator, the chief information security orchestrator, because he orchestrates over multiple environments towards multiple stakeholders. Right. Uh, in the end, with the same objective as the CFO, give reasonable assurance over his or her platform. He needs to provide that. He is end responsible for doing that. And zero trust, yeah, is, that's, that's just, very true. And zero trust is just one way of doing uh, what I always refer to as ordering. You're ordering your environment. You bring order in chaos. Well, so final, uh, I guess, final discussion points since we're running out of time here. I, I wanted to ask you, because with the 
with the way that the, the, the difficulty in trying to segment and zone off existing networks uh, while they're, you know, while they're operating, a friend of mine um, uh, likened it to trying to upgrade a 20 year old 767, uh, the engines and the wings while the plane is in between cities, right, in service. And he's like, listen, they're not going to land. They just have to, you, know, you land, you add people, you fly, you disembark, you add people, you fly. And that's what, you can't take it out of commission because then, the, you know, you start losing money every minute you're on the ground. He's like, so networks can't just turn off for a while um, and, and, and let us, you know, nobody's going to shut down the company for a month while we re-engineer the network. So it got me thinking, as we, as a lot more companies move out into cloud, leveraging virtualized cloud resources, whether it's VDI uh, in Azure or AWS, whether it's you know microservices, whether it's virtual machines in, in the cloud, is this now? Can, can we make zero trust a default? Is there a way to to make? I mean, it, there's a couple of places where we could simply say, you know, like like your default AMI in AWS could just be. Your your network rules could uh, could just be d- deny any, everything except for what I explicitly define. Right? That's there's an opportunity for us there. Do you see that as something that's viable, large scale, long term to kind of reinvent networking? Well, I, I think the starting with the basic principles of zero trust and starting to implement and then further leverage on it is a basic start because a lot of companies already have technology in place where you can do traditional segmentation, uh, inspection of traffic. Those are basic, very basic principles. Um, a couple of other principles are hard to implement, but I think uh, taking into account that 50% of the uh, installed firewalls, intrusion prevention equipment is not maintained and there are still default paths, start with doing that. So that's very yeah. basic principles. Uh, put content inspection on, uh, put it uh, uh, traditional uh, or very basic crypto in place, just utilize the technology that's already there to implement fully zero trust with all the principles that uh, we have 40 measures, you've you've seen them, put all 40 measures in place, that's cumbersome because then the user experience will uh, will decrease, or uh, conflicts of uh, of roles will appear. But that's not the way forward. Yeah. So, but but applying basic principles of zero trust is definitely the way forward, and you can do that at scale. We've seen that, including in cloud, because the majority of the technology is suitable doing it. If you look at the technology that we provide with Palo Alto Networks, for example, that you can apply the majority of the. Uh, the, the measures, but also the policies um, enforcing those measures. Yeah? So, for example, the policy SSL decryption and encryption. That's yeah, that's basically what Palo Alto can enforce on your environment. We'll start doing that. And regardless if it's in the cloud or VDI or in on-premise, you can start enforcing yeah. that. But I see still the majority of the companies not doing it because it interferes with the user experience. It is uh, where it's basically, yeah, that it, it, again, it's not a security party. You should involve then uh, business and asset owners. Hey, I'm going to enforce this. This might have consequences. I'm doing this for you and start having that conversation. 
Well, I think it's it kind of it's sort of like the the issue of of uh, seatbelts uh, here in the U.S. a long time, uh, many many years ago. There were lots of excuses like it's not comfortable. I forgot. Like there's just and, and somebody along the way just had to say, "Listen, this is for your own good. You have to do it." The argument against it is now null and void. Don't argue, just do it, right? And I think it's gonna what it might eventually take is some sort of regular. I hate saying regulatory because we, I, we just uh, on my LinkedIn page we just talked through the 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 PCI DSS requirement that, that that makes you change passwords every X number of days, which is arguably stupid because it doesn't actually solve any problems. It creates all, sometimes more. But anyway, in a regulatory capacity, we're going to have to say. Wide open networks with just controls at the edges is no longer a viable option. You have to implement layered security, contextual network understanding. And yes, it is going to inconvenience your users to some extent. Okay. It, it, you can't just have, you know, do whatever I want all the time. You know, we cried when they took away our local admin privileges. And you're like, ah, oh, I can't install all the things that I want, all my little games or tools or whatever. And then as you realize that, oh, by the way, that also makes sure that I don't accidentally get tricked into doing something. Okay, maybe that's not, you know, if, if the answer is no, you can never install anything, that sucks. But if the answer is you have to submit a ticket, they'll review it and they'll get back to you within 48 hours and, and do it for you in a, in a controlled manner. That's not so bad. I can deal with that, right? Or, or if it's urgent, they can do it same day, whatever. But there's that uh, every time security adds a control, there has to be a compensation to make it logical and usable. And I think that's the part that's been missing over the years because we just stick this these controls in. They're like, you know what? It's going to make it harder. Deal with it because security. And people are like, no, I don't have to. I'll go to my boss and my boss will tell you to turn it off. Yeah. And what we should have done is this is going to make it a little bit harder to, to do some of the basic things that you, you're used to every day. But A, here's why this is very important. It'll keep you safe and the company safe and more importantly, keep us from being, you know, get heavy liabilities. And also I'm going to make the, the yes, but part of it as easy as possible by providing resources so that you're not just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, this doesn't work anymore. Right. Yeah. I, mean, yeah, I, mean, I think that's the only way we get. I, th- I think it's, and it again, it comes down to the security professional himself. Right? So we had a, for example, yeah. I, I, we had a competition within NN Group where I, I uh, instructed my team, it's not allowed to present to business people uh, any jargon or abbreviation. So every presentation that you do about the why of security controls, it's not allowed to use abbreviations or, and I did it myself eh, when I presented to, uh, sorry, for example, supervisor. That's hard. I said to the beginning, you can you can give me points if I'm uh, minus points if I'm using abbreviation. And then start laughing, ha ha ha. Hey, you cannot do that because IT is all about abbreviation yard. But I really stress myself to not do it to explain in very simple language, eh, similar like we do now. You need to have social distancing. You need to have uh, a face mask. And we need. Why do we do this? Because we want to protect ourselves. We want to protect our elderly. So explain the why. Very plain yeah. and simple language, and people buy it because you explain similar like we do with COVID now. Eh? Why is everybody adhering to yeah. it? Yeah, some, some not, but the majority is adhering to it because we explain very simple why it's needed and why a vaccination is needed. But it's up again towards the security professional. I see too much security people, uh, yeah, uh, telling this this what you should do, 
And because I say so, and this is the framework that you need and put all the controls in there and without the why. It, yeah, and the users always give you that same look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like they give you that, like, I have no idea what you just said and it sounds silly and I don't want to do it. <laughs> and there was another one, another argument where I really liked it because I referred to in the last, uh, in my last book, uh, Leading in Digital Security to, uh, towards Jocko Willings. Uh, Jocko Willings' book, Extreme Ownership, is the same, uh, I think, as applicable for our profession, is that he refers in that book that you need to make, I think it's the 10,000 hour rule, eh? So before you enter this arena as a security professional, you need to make hours. And similar, but it is, I also hate the word regulated, but it is not controlled or a very clear educational path before you can become yeah. an ISO or a CISO. Why don't we develop yeah. similar like with doctors or uh, people working in aviation, eh, uh, pilots, a sort of a path, yes. including uh, a lot of trainings because yeah, uh, High-performing companies or high, in the high reliability theory, we refer always to the learning moment. Eh? You need to learn from failures and demonstrate learning, demonstrate learning. That's what we do with the doctoral program. Eh? You need to learn continuously. Yeah. And you, because you can learn a lot from failures and by cultivating that, and that's what I like about the book of Jocko Willings, you cultivate the fact that you are able to fail but uh, and it's allowed to fail, but you learn from it. And he combines it very good with ownership, eh? that as a security professional, you really should own your profession uh, and work with checklists before you go into the battlefield. Is everything that I need to have before I go to battle, to war, war is everything checked? And we simply do it, don't do it in security because we are... We are yeah, man. That, that, that's that's an entirely different podcast. We should get some people around because that like apprenticeship uh, step-in program uh, is is so necessary for, for so many reasons. But all right, we unfortunately are, are way over on time, but I had no intention of stopping you because this has been a great conversation and uh, I know a long time coming. So uh, Yuri, thanks for joining us on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I've certainly picked up a lot of interesting things from what you've been saying. Thanks, Rev. Thank you very much for uh, having me. Thank you very much. All right. Great. Stay warm. Stay safe, folks. Thanks for listening. This has been yet another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast with um, and your friend Yuri Bobert uh, over it on to it. He's the uh, CISO and he's I'll, I'll put his credentials in the uh, show notes. The guy, he's done more things than I can probably list out anyway, and I'll uh, I'll mess it up. But uh, well, I want to thank him for having him on the show. And Guys, thanks for listening. We'll catch you another time, another place on yet another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. See you next time. Ciao. As we fade out on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole episode, we'd like to encourage you to chat with our hosts and guests using the Twitter hashtag PoundDTSR. Please check out the show notes, catch up on any episodes you may have missed, and subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Our website is whiterabbit.net, W-H-1-T-3-R-A-B-B-I-T.net. So on behalf of Rafal, James, for now it's goodbye. We'll see you soon on another Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast.